Our reading this morning is from Titus, chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, grace and peace are yours from our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're, uh, as Victor said, looking at some of these Reformation truths, these, these onlys of the Reformation, these alones of the Reformation. And these are really the, the basics of what we are. These are the basics of what we believe as Lutheran Christians. And so as he said, we're going to look at them uh, in part in the next couple of weeks, then we'll return to them again in October when we think of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, um, what it means to say that these truths are restored to the church. So what a privilege for us to be able to walk this morning through grace alone. And as we think about what that is, we think about the, the truth that God has saved us in this way, right? Grace alone, faith alone, word alone, or scripture alone. And that grace forms the foundation of, of all that we know and believe about our God, our God who has come to rescue and to save us. Well, when I was thinking about this, you know, in the Reformation, these obviously were written in Latin, and, and that word alone is a translation. And in this context, it's probably better to understand it as only, Right? Only by grace, only by faith, only by God's word. But I, I was reflecting on that word alone. And I've told you this before, I often ask the wrong question when I read the biblical text, or I often focus on the wrong word, just because that's where my mind goes. I always think about that. And, and in this case, instead of focusing first on the word grace, I focused on the word alone. Right? And what alone means. Alone is a word that for some of us is... Uh, is a word that means respite, right? If you have young children at home and you just have a few minutes of being alone, there's nothing better, right? Okay, maybe I'm the only one in that, all right? I'm sorry. Or if you're a person who's really driven, you have lots going on in your life, you have lots of things that are happening, just have a few moments alone to catch your breath, it can be such a respite, it can be so wonderful, it can bring such peace. But then you tick that next step into loneliness. And you think of alone being isolation, not having people around you. And then it kind of goes into a darker place. And as I was thinking about that alone word in that regard, I, I thought of my dog. And now I know we're not, we're not dogs, but just forgive me for a second because I think this actually fits for us as well. That's my dog, that's our dog, his name is Jones. He looks very old and tired. That's how Jones looks a lot these days. 
But Jones is a social dog. He likes to be with his pack, our family. And when we leave Jones at home for a long time, like say we've got something then at night as well, and we've been gone most of the day, when we all finally settle down in the family room, my family will attest, and we all settle down, we sit down, the dog will come in and he will sit with us because he wants to be with us, but he will punish us by turning his back to us. So he will sit in the room, not like looking out the, out the door so that he can protect us from the bad things in the backyard like bunny rabbits, but he will sit even facing the wall with his back to us just to let us know, you have scorned me and I am now returning the favor. Right? Doesn't he do this? I'm not making this up. And now I, I know we're not dogs, but sometimes we do the same thing. When we feel lonely, when we have that sense inside of us that we've been abandoned, we, we have a need to let others know. And we know it deep inside ourselves, and we have that need to get back together with other people, to be the social creatures that God has created us to be. Don't worry, those of you who are introverts, even you. That God calls us into a community together, and that he intends for us to walk together in this. But, but we realize that we are alone. We realize that we're alone. In fact, we start to reflect on it and what it means. We can start to ask ourselves big questions about being alone. We get beyond just why am I alone, and we start to look and, and ask even the metaphysical question, like is there a God out there, or are we really all alone? We start to ask if there is a God out there, and he's all-powerful and almighty, as I know that a God must be, then what does that mean about me, because I know that I'm not? And so you recognize that if there is a God out there, in those moments of questioning, those difficult moments where you say, then, then maybe he's just waiting to punish me. And so maybe it would be better if I was just all alone. See, these are the things that come up when you reflect on the word alone. And it's important for us to do it. It's important for us to focus first on ourselves alone. What it means if we are left to our own devices, if we are left to our own sinful nature, how we will act in that regard. And the scriptures speak to it quite clearly. They answer this question for us over and over again, speaking to who we are at our core. These are the words that Paul writes about in Titus chapter 3. Paul's writing to a pastor, his name is Titus, and as he's writing to this pastor, he tells him these things are profitable and good for everyone to know. It's important for us to reflect on this, to spend some time thinking about what we would be like if we were left all alone. The picture isn't pretty. In fact, this is what Paul writes. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We're foolish and deceived. It means that we believed lies. And we do. We, we believe lies. Lies that are told to us. And we could talk for a long time about the lies that we believe in our sinful nature, but I want to just focus on one. It's the lie that I think we, it does the most damage to us and that we focus on the most. It's this lie that says, I am good enough, right? This is the opposite. The lie says, I am good enough. The lie is that thing that says, you know, if there is a God out there, he's probably going to accept me because I'm, I'm basically a pretty good person. 
I haven't done that many bad things. After all, I know lots of people who did worse things than I did. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good enough. That's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach us that, that that's a lie. It's a lie that we have been deceived by to tell us that we are good enough, to tell us that that's the reason why God should let us into heaven, to tell us that that's the reason why we should be acceptable, but instead we keep reading and we learn we're not okay, we're not good enough. In fact, we are disobedient. Disobedient means that we are rebels at our core. It means at the heart of who we are as human beings, we are rebels. And if you don't believe me, then just put a rule in front of me. And I'm not alone in this, and I know it. So don't try to lie to me. And, right? There's a reason why I chose a speed limit sign on the loop around Indianapolis. It drives me nuts that the speed limit is 55 miles an hour. Sometimes I exceed it. In fact, <laughs> in fact, when I see a speed limit sign, I'll admit, the little boy inside me sees it as a challenge. How much can I push that and still be within the law? And while that's funny, we realize we do the same thing with God's law. And we see something like, thou shalt not murder. And we say, well, I, I don't do that. I know people that do. They go to jail. And then we hear Jesus saying, if you've even hated your brother or sister in your heart, that you've violated this commandment. And we want to rebel against that, right? We want to rebel and say, well, that's not me, that's other people. I want to see how far I can push the limits. I want to see how far I can go and still be within what God has for my plan. And that's the disobedience at work. And I have to be busy trying to cover my tracks. And you know what happens? The Apostle Paul tells us, we become enslaved by the passions of the world. Enslaved by the passions and pleasures of the world. We don't think about it that way, do we? We, we just think about that temptation that's there and we say, oh, well, you know, it's just out there and, and it's not that big of a deal. It's the reason why I chose a plate full of cookies. But it becomes our motivating force. It becomes what drives us to get up in the morning is to pursue that passion, to pursue that pleasure, and to think that we're going to get away with it, and to maybe even be tickled because there's that risk that's involved in it. There's a, there's a story which has kind of grown into a legend in my family. My, my mom's youngest brother, my uncle, who happens to be my godfather, he, uh, he did something legendary as a kid. My grandma was baking cookies. And she was begging for something, I, I don't even remember as part of the story, whether it was at school or for church or for something. She was baking literally dozens of cookies, all right? And there were cookies all over the kitchen, all over, and they were just cooling. And my grandmother stepped out of the room. Well, my uncle knew that whenever he took a bite of something, nobody else would eat it. So in his mind, he devised a plan. If I lick all of these cookies, they will all belong to me. And that's exactly what he did. Licked every single last one of them. And as he was finishing licking all the cookies, who walked into the kitchen? But my grandma. Now this was a different time in a different era, okay? But my grandmother had to punish him for what he had done. And so what did she do? She made him eat every single cookie. 
You know what happens when you eat that many cookies? A little boy blurted it out in the first service. They come back up. <laughs> to this day, my uncle still doesn't like sweet things. When we start thinking about our disobedience and our rebellion before God, we're acknowledging before him that we are being disobedient. And then that takes that form of hatred. And the Apostle Paul, the scriptures include this one as well. And I'm going to tell you, this is a place where I want to jump up on my soapbox for us in America in 2017. Because I think that we are, we are drowning in a sea of hate of hate toward each other in our soundbite culture and the things that we can post online and the things that we can say anonymously, the ways that we can tear people down, the ways that we can devastate and destroy other people. And what I find most fascinating in this is that the Apostle Paul doesn't just say that we hate other people. It says as a result of all of this behavior, we are hated and we drown in the cesspool of hate. This is what we see when we reflect on ourselves alone. We realize that we are alone in our sin, that we are isolated by the hate that it creates, the separation, the isolation between us and our God and between us and our brothers and sisters, between us and those all around. And it's important for us to do it. It's important for us to feel the weight of that separation, to feel the weight of our sin and of our sinfulness. Because we're asking that existential question, what does God want with us? God has every right coming into the kitchen and finding us having licked every cookie to force us to eat them all with mustard or without. But this is what the scriptures tell us. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He didn't make us eat the cookies. Instead, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, when things could have gone horribly wrong, when God could have come and simply in wrath lashed out at us and punished us. Instead, he came in kindness and in love. And I, I'm so fascinated by the word kindness that's used there. Because the word kindness at the root, right, what does it mean? It means having a fellow feeling, having an understanding of kind, of knowing who we are, and of knowing us completely, and of not abandoning us. Instead, coming and having compassion on our kind. He came in kindness. And he came in love. The kids could define God's love for us. And some of us have had the privilege of knowing it since we knew anything. But it's important for us to reflect on it alone. And to not simply gloss over saying, yeah, I know what God's love is, but instead to realize its effects and to know what it means to say that though we pushed God away, though we alienated and isolated ourselves, though we separated ourselves by our sin and sinfulness, that our God appeared to save us. That our God appeared out of his great mercy. That's what he tells us. That he came out of mercy and lavished this on us generously through Jesus Christ. Generous 
It's that word that means he didn't just give enough. He gave until our cup overflowed. Mercy, meaning he didn't give us what we deserved, but instead in grace gave us what we didn't deserve. That this is what our God has done, that God came, God appeared, and God saved us. And he did it alone, without any righteous acts of us, without anything that we did to say, hey God, can you come? Without any righteous acts on our part to say, hey God, but we're really pretty good people. Without any righteous acts on our part, he came and saved us. And he continues to come to us through the power of his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul starts off this entire writing by saying, at one time we were, which now speaks of a time when we are not. And he says we are not any longer because the generous love of God has been poured out to us in the washing of renewal and rebirth by the Holy Spirit. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about what happens in this very place. As we are washed in the waters of holy baptism, we are called God's people. His grace is given to us. And it's not just a one-time thing. In fact, in the New Testament, it says over 200 times that Christ is in us and Christ is with us. It speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit that is ongoing every single day of your life. Every single day of your life, you know, I have been washed by God because the kindness and love of God my Savior appeared, that he has forgiven me. You know what I find fascinating? Is that whenever we reflect on God's grace, we always express it slightly differently. When the Apostle Paul reflects on God's grace, he gets hyper and excited. You can see it in his writing. It starts to just bombard us with words, 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 and more words. He almost writes treatise each time just to reflect on God's grace. That's how Paul's mind operates, and that's how some of us operate. But when Jesus reflected on his purpose, when Jesus reflected on the grace that he has for us, Jesus told stories. One of the stories that Jesus told was a story that's familiar to all of us. It's a story of the 99 sheep. He said this, what do you think? If a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? Brothers and sisters, that's ridiculous. Why would you leave 99 to get into trouble? Why would you leave 99 to get attacked? Why would you leave 99? That's where your money's gonna be made, not in the one. But Jesus is telling a story about grace. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he interjects. He's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. That's the story that Jesus tells. The story that the Apostle Paul writes a treatise about. The story that teaches us that we are alone no more by grace alone in Jesus Christ. For his glory, amen.